This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, Managing Editor at Crosscut. And today we're going to talk about enthusiasm. That's not a word that really applies to our current moment. The things that we count on for a jolt of excitement are off limits to anyone following public health recommendations. Sports, weddings, concerts, birthday parties. For most of us, those just aren't happening. Enthusiasm during a pandemic can be deadly, which is why it's so weird to be in the middle of a pandemic during a presidential race, because presidential races are all about enthusiasm. Going into this re-election year, President Donald Trump was expected to dust off his 2016 playbook, stoking his base by filling arenas with supporters and verbal fireworks that would get everyone's attention. Enthusiasm. But what happens when filling arenas is just not going to happen? I wonder, will dread replace enthusiasm as the driving force for this election? Or will Trump and Joe Biden find a new way to generate actual excitement? For this episode, I'm speaking with David Pluff, the former campaign manager and senior advisor to President Barack Obama about campaigning in the midst of crisis. He tells me how he thinks the pandemic and social unrest have changed the race, whether the anti-Trump vote alone can defeat the current president, and how, despite his dismal approval ratings, Trump can still win. And a quick reminder that I'll be interviewing Senator Patty Murray soon. If you have questions for the senator, send them to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. I've got David Pluff here. David is a political strategist best known for his role as campaign manager of Barack Obama's successful bid for the presidency in 2008. He's been called the mastermind of that campaign, and he's also an author. His latest is A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to talk about what has happened since you finished writing the book, which was a while ago and a lot has happened. But in particular, I want to talk about the race for the Democratic nomination. When you finished writing this book, there were 20 or so nominees vying for the nomination. Back then, what did you think we needed in a candidate? You know, you hope that you nominate, first and foremost, someone who would be a very good, if not great, president. So ultimately, the campaign should be secondary to that. But to get to the White House, you know, it's someone who needs to inspire enough enthusiasm to build a winning campaign. That's financial. It's volunteer support. um, The ability to both register tough to register voters and turn out tough to turn out voters, but also win back enough swing voters and someone who could put enough states in play because the Electoral College is a chess match. And the more moves you have, the more margin for error you have. And, you know, so so I think in Joe Biden, we have somebody now who can do all that. Now, some of that is because Donald Trump has been weakened by his handling of the coronavirus, the economy, his response to the George Floyd protests. Um, but I think Biden is someone who should have the ability to put together the coalition. So, you know, can they create enough excitement on the one hand amongst people to volunteer and donate Uh, and turn out and register? And can they win back not just the famous Trump Obama voters, but, you know, there's other people who are undecided or people who might have voted third party last time. Uh, You know, can we keep them in our column? So uh, to win the presidency, you got to do a whole bunch of things. You know, there's not just one demographic or one cohort. And, you know, uh, help us win back the Senate as well. 
I, I just kind of want to set the table for for this this conversation that we're having after being left for dead largely by um, many many pundits and and folks in the media. Really, there was just a radical pivot, and after that moment, Biden was the presumptive nominee. What, in your view, happened? Well, it's interesting. So um, Jonathan Martin from The New York Times, our chief political correspondent, he wrote a story on South Carolina. Maybe it was the spring of 2019. And I talked to him about it. I was quoted in there saying it's hard for me to believe somebody can be the Democratic nominee without winning South Carolina, just because South Carolina is such a gateway into a lot of those other big southern states. So you know, we were right about that. And I, and the question all along, and I and I spoke about this publicly, was what would it take to threaten Joe Biden's lead in South Carolina? Uh, and, you know, I think he did seriously threaten that by performing so poorly in Iowa and New Hampshire. But whether it was Pete Buttigieg or Bernie Sanders, nobody between Iowa and South Carolina developed sufficient momentum and support with the African-American community to really become that threat. And so in this case, you know, if you're the Biden campaign, you probably would have liked to done really well in Iowa and North Carolina, maybe win Nevada and South Carolina was your capstone. In this case, mm. it was the life preserver, but it was still intact. Right. And I think once the race got down to a two person race, in this case, it was Biden Sanders. If it had been Biden versus anybody, if that person couldn't win a majority of the African-American vote, they weren't going to be the nominee. You know, that was key to Barack Obama's win in 08. It was key to Hillary Clinton's win in 2016. It's really been important for all Democratic nominees. And so that's what I think happened is Biden was down to his last political breath. And he did well enough in Nevada. I think if he had come in third or fourth in Nevada, I'm not sure he would have certainly done as well as he did in South Carolina. He may still have won it. But, you know, Nevada was a little bit of a correction for him, even though Sanders won it with a big margin. Uh, and nobody in that intervening period had auditioned properly to become the candidate who was going to get the African-American support. So I think in South Carolina, and this is true in all of the other states, really, north or south, was Biden was the guy. He was the national front runner. He performed poorly in the first two early states, but nobody had jumped into his lane. And so all that vote was still there for him. And of course, the Clyburn endorsement. I think clearly Biden, in my view, would have won South Carolina without Clyburn. But the margin was as important as the victory. And I think the Clyburn endorsement clearly uh, was one of the more important endorsements in recent political history. After Biden takes control of really the course of the nomination, you expect to see a pretty predictable path uh, between, you know, of shifting from the primary to the general. But fate had different ideas and a lot has happened since since that Tuesday. So. After attempting a comeback, Senator Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, essentially ending the, the primary campaign for the Democratic nomination. But at the same time, the coronavirus pandemic took hold of the country and really ended public campaigning. Then there was the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers that set off a wave of anti-racism protests that have totally dominated the national conversation since. So this is a very, very odd campaign that we're in the middle of. From your vantage point, I wonder how have these events changed your calculus when it comes to the strategy to defeat Donald Trump? Well, it's it's changed pretty much everything. And, you know, incumbent presidents have an enormous advantage. They're prepared for the race. They're focused on the general electorate, which is completely different than the primary electorate. It's really a completely different market and audience. They have financial resources. They built their whole campaign. 
And they generally are pretty successful. We define Mitt Romney, George W. Bush defined John Kerry, Ronald Reagan defined Walter Mondale, Bill Clinton defined Bob Dole in a way that really made it hard for those candidacies to, to emerge fully. So a couple things. One is every incumbent president doesn't want it to be solely a referendum on their record or performance in office. Mm-hmm. I think because of the coronavirus, both the health and the economic impacts, uh, as well as the uh, racial protests, you know, Donald Trump is is the one on trial right now. It's going to be harder for him to make this uh, not a referendum on him, number one. Number two, I think it gave the Biden campaign time to raise money, to build their team, to really figure out what states they're going to target which is hard enough to do in the best of circumstances. But when you have an incumbent president trying to politically decapitate you, it's incredibly hard. And so the fusillade I think the Trump campaign was prepared to dump on Biden had to take, you know, a 60 to 90 day uh, pause. So I think that um, both in terms of the atmospherics of the race, which I I think are, are much more now in Joe Biden's advantage, and that they've had the ability to get their sea legs up a little bit, um, I think it's it's been politically, as, as tragic as it's been for the country, it's been politically beneficial. So I think the question will be as, as you know, campaigning begins to emerge in whatever form that takes, but clearly Joe Biden is going to be traveling more and doing more and more in battleground states. The campaign's going to have to figure out, can you do door knocking, canvassing in the fall? Can you not? Is it all virtual? Um, but I, I think that they, they now have the race that's probably uh, most to their liking from a positioning standpoint. And their campaign's not as fully formed as Donald Trump's is. Um, but, you know, Donald Trump's campaign probably still has a better sense right now of how to get to a win number in Wisconsin and Florida and Arizona than the Biden campaign does. Not that they will. Just, you know, Donald Trump, this is all he's cared about for four years is getting reelected. And everybody says, well, every president cares about that. I've studied them all. I was part of one. They all had more than a passing interest of being reelected. But whether it was Barack Obama, George Bush, Ronald Reagan, you know, the campaign was a small part of what they did every day. This is all Donald Trump's focused on. And so that comes with some advantages, I think. But right now, I think this is Joe Biden's race to lose. That doesn't mean he's going to win. It doesn't mean it won't be super close. But I think in large part, I say that just because Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, maybe Ohio, maybe Iowa, maybe Georgia, maybe even Texas. That's so important to have a wide electoral college battleground. And we didn't know that would be the case 90 or 120 days ago. I think now almost assuredly, I mean, you can make the argument right now that an Arizona or a Florida are more likely to go to Biden than even a Wisconsin is. And that's huge. That means Biden could lose a bunch of his target states and still win the presidency. So Donald Trump's going to be playing electoral college defense. Now, he, he you know, it was a black swan event in 16 and he threaded the needle. Uh, so we'll see if he can do it again. But right now, I think the electoral college advantage goes to Biden. I'll be back with more from David Pluff in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alaska Airlines is taking care to the next level with a renewed commitment to providing a higher standard of cleanliness and safety. From airport check-in to boarding, from takeoff to landing, next-level care involves COVID-19 preparedness plans and procedures developed with the FAA and CDC. This includes electrostatic disinfectant sprayers and onboard filters that remove 99.95% of airborne particles. Alaska is also putting proper social distancing procedures in place, requiring masks of employees and guests, providing sanitizing stations and wipes, reconfiguring seating arrangements, limiting in-flight services, and more. 
When you decide it's time to fly, Alaska is prepared to take your travels to the next level. Learn more at alaskaair.com slash nextlevelcare. I want to focus on this rally uh, that happened on June 20th in Tulsa. <laughs> it's a very interesting event because the, as with almost everything now, it's a bit of a Rorschach test, right? But there are also just all of these different elements at play. Um, you have the pandemic, you have protests, you have K-pop stands and alt TikTok uh, buying up tickets or, or reserving tickets. Um, you know, there, there just like are all of these different factors that kind of play into what happened in that uh, in that stadium, in that arena. But I want to see it through your eyes. What did that event tell you about enthusiasm in the Trump campaign and for the Trump campaign? Well, I will start. Yeah. And I'll try to answer this as a former practitioner, right? Not as a partisan. Yeah. So please. first, yeah. So I'd say, first of all, rally attendance does not equal votes. So there's probably not Trump's not going to generate probably the same crowd size as he did this time as he did last time. We didn't in 2012. And there was political commentators saying, see, Obama's vulnerable because he got 100,000 people, you know, in Oregon or 90,000 people in St. Louis and he's not getting that. Um, but, you know, it's the second time around. And all that matters is, are they going to cast their vote by mail or uh, in person? So we should be careful to do any extrapolation between what that means in terms of actual voter turnout. But I'd say as a protectioner, I mean, this is true for business. It's true in relationships. It's true in politics. You never want to overpromise and underdeliver. So, you know, they, they, a cardinal rule talking about we've got a million people and we're going to have this secondary site. If you're going to have a secondary site, don't tell anybody about it. And then it happens on that day and say, see, the crowd was so big, we had to have a second site. So they violated all the expectation rules. I don't think they accounted for the fact that even people who are giving Donald Trump money, even people who are spending hours a day on social media on his behalf, even people who are going to vote and volunteer, didn't want to show up at a rally. Like people are voting, you know, in terms of attendance, you know, you see all the polls, 80% of people worried about a second wave. A lot of people still not comfortable going into crowds, going into restaurants. So you're going to tell them to go to some packed indoor arena? No, that doesn't mean that, you know, those people aren't going to vote for Donald Trump who didn't show up, but they're not going to do that. So the question is always in a campaign is how do you adjust? So is he now going to insist on doing more rallies? That would be a mistake, I think. Uh, you, you probably can do some smaller rallies. You can do some things that uh, may not even be rallies, but are out and about. So that's the question. But right now, I think whether you're Donald Trump partisan or Joe Biden partisan, there's some healthy percentage of people that aren't going to be comfortable going to a rally. So they, they sort of made the mistake of not understanding the audience and kind of the atmosphere around them. And it was almost like, we're going to do a rally no matter what. And the evidence should have been pretty clear they were going to struggle. Um, so it was a disaster. I thought his performance was horrendous. I, my guess is the rally thing, he ascribes more magic to it from 16 than there was. OK, he loves it. It's an outlet for him. I don't think it helps him politically. So my view is he should do as many rallies as he wants. I, I don't think people should attend them, but I don't think they help him. I think they hurt him. I thought the briefings he did around the coronavirus hurt him. I think his rallies are going to hurt him. So the more exposure he has, I think it will be harmful politically. As if you're a Democrat, that's good news because he can't avoid the spotlight. He has to be out there. He has to make himself the story. So it was a disaster of epic proportion. So listen, Barack Obama's first event in the 2012 re-election was May. 
Our first rally was in Ohio. It was well attended, but we had some empty seats and we did a lot of soul searching about that. What did that mean? Where did we make mistakes organizationally? Uh, Did we go to the wrong location? Nothing like this. What I'll be looking for is how do they course correct? How do they change? So let's change the focus over to the Biden campaign. You know, in your book, you focus a lot on uh, engagement and enthusiasm as a key to a successful campaign. So where do you see the enthusiasm for Biden right now? It's growing. So I think it's fair to say outside of people who are hardcore supporters of his in the primary, I'd say the enthusiasm still generates more from anti-Trump than pro-Biden. And, you know, the anti-Trump thing is historical in nature. So it's always going to be an important driver. But we need more people to get passionate about Biden. It's why I write about this in my book, that whoever our nominee was, we need to spend a lot more time posting, you know, positive content, things we see that they do or say that we're excited about. I think that's particularly true of Joe Biden. So, um, you know, he just put out his first ad. Uh, You know, he's been doing a lot of interviews. There's old footage of some of the, you know, hearings he chaired in the Senate that have really powerful moments. Like whatever speaks to you, share it. You know, so post it on Facebook, post on Instagram, post it on Twitter. I think the anti-Trump sentiment's going to be there. I mean, it's going to be there as surely on November 3rd as it is today. So we've got that. But we need people to feel passionate about Biden. Now, that's people who, like, we need to give money or to volunteer or to, you know, fire up their social networks on his behalf. Uh, there's going to be people at the end of the day, though, in these battleground states. You're not going to convince them Joe Biden's going to be a great president. And you need to tell them, yeah, maybe he's not going to be on Mount Rushmore. We hope he is. But this is the only way to get rid of Trump. And, you know, what issue do you care about? And whether it's health care, the economy or climate change or transportation or education, you need to be able to if you're a person out there supporting Joe Biden, you need to say, well, here's why I believe in him. Here's what I think he's going to be able to do. Is he a perfect man? No. Will he be a perfect president? No. I think sometimes progressives in particular, we make the mistake of trying to convince everybody, you know, our candidates are the historically best thing ever. And that's not where a swing voter, they're not going to listen to that. Somebody who's not sure where they're going to vote at all, by definition, uh, is somewhat jaundiced. So I think you have to take that into account. But to build the army Joe Biden needs, we need to add more to the, here's why I'm excited about Joe Biden. Here's what will do. I think there's a lot of work that the Biden campaign needs to do and all of us need to do to be able to articulate why we're excited by him. And I'm excited about, we need to dig out of an economic hole uh, the likes of which the country's rarely seen. He just led that effort 10 years ago. He helped re- he helped build new industries like the green energy economy. He did it in a transparent way. I've never met anybody in politics who just thinks every decision through the prism of, you know, a nurse in Wilmington, Delaware, or a steel worker in Scranton. He's got the middle class and working class in his bones. And he's just one of the most empathetic people on the planet, not just in politics. And I think following Donald Trump, that's going to be incredibly important. You know, get us back into Paris Climate Accords, Every executive action you can imagine to protect the planet, he'll put in place right away. Uh, You know, we may have at least one or two more Supreme Court justices to nominate in the next four years. So that court, rather than two more Kavanaugh's, uh, he'll appoint, you know, great justices that will serve decades and make it a more progressive court. So that is what I think they have to do, because at the end of the day, to build the volunteer army you need to then convince tough to convince voters to vote or to vote for your candidate it just can't be enough to be against the other guy, even somebody who's as powerful in that respect as Donald Trump. And yet that was early on what Biden's campaign was largely about. I mean, he was criticized for being so focused on on beating Trump and not really having 
at least or at least not putting forward kind of the ideas of what kind of a candidate he would be, but really focusing on what kind of a president Trump is. And yet and yet he's shifted away from that. Do you think that that was the game plan all along? Right. Well, it's a completely different race. So I remember during the primary debates, you know, you'd you'd see political commentators uh, say, boy, they're missing opportunities. They should just be banging on Trump all day and attacking him. It's like, no, th- this is the semifinals. <laughs> they're trying to take on Trump. So the job of each of those candidates was to win enough support in the Democratic primary to beat Trump. That, that was not a general election audience. It was not a general election debate. So Joe Biden, uh, electability was a huge driver of vote in the Democratic primary. So he was making the case, as were others, that they were the most electable candidate. Now you're in a general election. So the people are going to decide this general election very different than those that decide primaries, almost entirely different uh, in terms of their news consumption, how much they pay attention to politics, how much they know about you. So Joe Biden right now, most voters in America know his name. It would surprise, I think, people who follow politics carefully to understand the people that decide this election don't know much beyond that. Like he's got to reintroduce himself from a biography standpoint, from a value standpoint, from an accomplishment standpoint, from a, a, a policy agenda going forward. Has to. You can't skip the first chapter of the book. That's always something when I went from primary to general in any race, it was always a stark reminder that it's a completely different audience. So primary voters are paying attention to almost everything you're saying. And they're on MSNBC and they're on Twitter and they're on Facebook looking at political news. Tough to register general election voters or swing voters aren't really consuming information like that. So that was a different race. Right now, Joe Biden doesn't have to really talk about electability other than to try and get Democrats more confident in his candidacy, because voters who are going to decide this election don't care about electability. Um, They're going to decide it on health care or the economy or competence uh, or or stability. I think that is going to be a real challenge for the Biden campaign. So as much as they need to create excitement, I think with a lot of swing voters, just his stability. This is a sane, competent person. And there's a lot of voters, even some that voted for Trump, who are looking for that as a remedy. So they're going to have to balance that, uh, the need to kind of excite the base and um, the fact that for a lot of voters out there, he is just the safe alternative to Donald Trump right now. It's such a strange social atmosphere right now, though. And and certainly you see his campaign navigating it or attempting to navigate it. We're seeing public opinion around anti-racism and police reform shift um, dramatically so quickly. It, it is as if you took uh, what happened around or around marriage equality and just sort of put it into hyperdrive and had it all, you know, it just took a couple of weeks, right? I guess I wonder how you attempt to appeal to those moderate voters that you need to get while their attitudes towards something that is traditionally a progressive cause are shifting. And if it becomes more politically palatable to adopt more progressive positions on those issues, or if there is still risk there. Well, Joe Biden has by far the most progressive platform any Democratic nominee's ever had. You know, while he's not calling for defunding or abolishing the police, he is calling for huge reforms there, including, I'd imagine, um, some some reallocation of that money. So there's some in our party, obviously, who are more to the left of him on some issues. Or he's going to land uh, is by far the most progressive Democratic nominee we ever had. So, you know, I've learned in politics uh, the best, uh, you know, option is always just to be true to who you are because people can sniff out when you're not. 
whether your position is to the left of the mainstream, right, center, whatever it is, that's their most important job. Why am I seeking the office I'm seeking? What am I going to do with it? So, you know, Joe Biden, I think, has a really well-developed sense of what he wants to do on all the core important issues, and he should stick with that. Um, but I do think the shift is amazing. I mean, you know, you look back at at the history of what happened around the beating on the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis and others. It was the visual power of that. And I think the, the visual power, those eight plus minutes in Minnesota a few weeks ago, really uh, broke through. And I shook the country. And, you know, my guess is you may see a little bit of erosion on some of the numbers we're, we're seeing, but I think this is a fundamental shift that people understand something's hmm. broken. So I think Joe Biden has a wide berth. And, you know, this is at the end of the day, you know, when Donald Trump says, you know, Joe Biden's going to lead the socialist horde, you know, to overturn America and you're not going to recognize it. One, you know, a lot of voters agree with what we think on things like health care and on climate change and on tax policy and on education policy. I don't think those attacks are going to register uh, because at the end of the day, while Joe Biden is running on an incredibly progressive platform, you know, he has a track record. People understand he's thoughtful. People understand he'll hire good people. He'll build a great cabinet around him. So I just think at the end of the day, you see Trump's flailing. They haven't figured out what to hit Biden with. You know, they've got this dementia angle, which clearly is not going anywhere. They've got that he's being led around by the socialist horde. That doesn't seem to be landing. You know, he's too lazy for the job. That doesn't seem to be landing. He's corrupt. I mean, give me a break. If Joe Biden can't win that debate against Donald Trump, he doesn't deserve to win. So you can see that Trump himself and his campaign are having trouble latching on to what is the argument against Joe Biden? Um, my suspicion is, well, they'll get there is, hey, Joe Biden was in Washington for decades and a lot didn't change. And so can you trust him now to come in and bring about change? My guess is they'll land there. That was some of their most effective messaging against Hillary. You remember back in the debates, Trump would make that case. Hey, you've been there forever. It's time for something new. I, the research I saw suggested that was pretty effective. But that's not very sexy for Trump. You know, he wants to go after Joe Biden's energy or his mental capacity or, you know, say that basically AOC is going to be running, you know, his presidency. All stuff that I think most voters laugh off. Do you think that there is an avenue for criticism of Joe Biden as in terms of of character. Uh, you know, you certainly see there were the, the Tara Reid accusations of sexual assault, his history with the Clarence Thomas nomination and, and Anita Hill. You know, there there are some openings there to really question his character. Do you do you feel like that the campaign is concerned about about those? Well, I, I think, you know, he's going to have to answer for those. And he has, you know, he did, a, I thought, a really important uh, interview around the Tara Reid allegations uh, he's been asked repeatedly about the Thomas hearings. When someone's been in not just public life, but life for 40 or 50 years, you're going to have views or decisions you made back then that you wouldn't make now. That's just life. Um, and he's going to have to answer to those and talk about how he's changed his mind, why he changed his mind. And most importantly, campaigns, particularly presidential campaigns, are about the future, not the past. So he's going to have to link if he's had evolution in his thinking or in his positions uh, what that means for what he's going to do going forward. So I'm sure he's going to continue to get those questions directly from voters and, and from the media. All I can say is, you know, um, you know, I was very involved in, in all the vetting of all of our candidates in 08. He wouldn't have been picked if we had things that we were concerned about in terms of his background. Yeah, he he did. Say, he's done some things and said some things and had some positions um, that, you know, are harder to defend in, in modern times. 
Um, but we had confidence that, that he would have answers to those and watched him in the Democratic debates in 07 08 have to do that. Uh, but this is someone of great competence, of great curiosity, of, of great empathy. He'll run good process. He'll hire good people. So, no, um, he is, is one of the best people I've met in my life, not just in politics. Uh, and I think he's just got a great core as a human being. I think he's great, got great empathy for all people, but particularly for people struggling, uh, whether that's economically or with health or with, with environmental issues that they're facing in their community. So I think he's going to be a very, very strong candidate. Uh, but he'll have to answer all those. Um, you know, listen, but Barack Obama was a younger candidate, but he had votes and positions he had in the state Senate that, you know, were different when he ran for president. Or he got attacked on then. So that happens to anybody. But I think what matters is voters take a measure of the core of somebody. They're not going to penalize you for one vote or one statement necessarily. Donald Trump is going to try and make it about Joe Biden. Joe Biden needs to make it about like 25 percent what Trump did wrong or how you can't trust him for the future and 75 percent about what he's going to do in the future. Very little about anything he did in the last 40 years, not because he should be worried about that, just because voters don't want to hear you talk about your resume and all your accomplishments. What are you going to do for me now? particularly when the government assistance runs out and we still have unemployment, you know, north of 10 percent. I think the, that that reality is going to hit like a ton of bricks. And I think we're going to be facing a very different environment in the fall where, you know, mm-hmm. you have the pandemic still going on. You've obviously had a lot of economic upheaval. You've got the protests, a lot going on. The, all that may still be going on in the fall, sadly. But I think people are going to say, wait, I've lost my government assistance and I still don't have my job or my small business close. So I think the the economic anxiety, which is already quite pronounced, is going to be off the charts by the fall. So as a campaign strategist, you're always thinking about how the other person can win. You have to. You you have to spend at least as much time on that, if not more. Yes. So given what we know and what we imagine will happen, how does Donald Trump win this race? Well... Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this, um, as I'm sure a lot of folks are. So first of all, uh, you know, let's not pay much attention to any poll. But but even the polls today, you know, we're in late June that show Biden, you know, national polls. By the way, in the Obama campaign, we never did national polls. I saw Kellyanne Conway from, you know, Trump's orbit said that as well. She's right about that. This is not a national election. So let's look at the, the, the polling in states like Florida, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. You know, Joe Biden, in, in, in all those polls on average, has opened up a pretty significant lead. But a lot of those states are like 48, 44, you know, 47, 41. He's not sitting at like 53. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the people who've now gone undecided will come back to Trump. They're upset at the way he's handled the coronavirus. They're upset about what he's done around the protests. But they're going to come back. They're not going to vote for Biden. A poll that shows you winning 47-44 is much less important than how's the rest of that 13% going to be allocated? That's truly undecided. <laughs> and when you go through that exercise, right. it tightens up, number one. Number two, uh, we talked about enthusiasm and excitement being important for uh, Biden. Trump's already got it. So when people f- start feeling overconfident about this election, I asked him to go back to t- 2004 and what George Bush did to John Kerry in Ohio, where he won that race, even though Kerry added hundreds of thousands of votes to uh, Al Gore's total, because Bush found and registered and turned out every conservative on the planet in Ohio. That's what Trump's going to do. I don't think he's going to do well with traditional swing voters, but I do think he'll register a lot of people. And, you know, there's never been a street fighter like Donald Trump, certainly in modern times. 
and he's going to fight for this presidency with every weapon he has, illegal or not. He'll say anything about Joe Biden. Uh, there'll be foreign governments around the world deeply interested in Donald Trump getting another four years. Voter interference, uh, voter um, disenfranchisement, state-sponsored suppression, all those things. So it's going to be harder for people to vote than they should just because the way that we conduct elections in this country. Donald Trump's going to sow confusion. The Russians will sow confusion. Maybe the Chinese will. Maybe the North Koreans will. Maybe even the Iranians will because it's in all their interest to have a weak American president. What concerns me is right now, can you say, you know, I feel great about the following states to get to Joe Biden 270. Michigan looks good, but not a lock. After that, there's nothing you consider, you know, an 80 percent likelihood that Joe Biden wins. So even if he wins Michigan, Pennsylvania, which he's going to have to fight with, that would put him at 268. He still has to get another state to win the presidency. So the Electoral College will be closer than the national vote. We know that uh, it'll probably be even more so this time. Donald Trump's going to turn out an astronomically high number of his base, uh, those that are registered and those that they'll register. And, you know, he's going to fight like a dog. So you'd rather be Joe Biden than Donald Trump. There's no question about that right now. By the way, you, you might not have said that 90 days ago, but you say that today. And you'd always rather be in that position than not in a campaign. But this is a tricky piece of business. And, you know, you could see Donald Trump winning Arizona, Florida and Wisconsin uh, and Pennsylvania narrowly. I mean, so we have three options here. Donald Trump wins narrowly. Joe Biden wins narrowly or Joe Biden wins by a big margin. There is no Donald Trump wins by a big margin. So the other thing I think for everybody who's interested in this election and in winning back the Senate and, and the presidency and, and uh, even building our majority in the House, you know, we got to go for the kill here, you know, politically speaking. Uh, and win by a big enough margin to get the Senate back, add seats in the House, do well at the state and, and local level. So if you're the Biden campaign, you have to run an excellent campaign for two reasons. It could really tighten up and you might need that to win a close presidential race. Or if you get super lucky, uh, Donald Trump never tightens this race up. And then you have a chance to win by what we'd consider today a landslide, six, seven, eight points. Uh, and think about how many Democrats are going to come across the finish line because you do that. And this guy needs to be repudiated. You know, if he gets embarrassed electorally, um, you know, there's more chance that he becomes a pry out there. You know, he's not invited to Republican conventions and people don't want to stay at his hotels and he goes bankrupt and all the things that should happen. <laughs> and we don't have like thousands of mini Trumps running around Western democracies. If he loses this narrowly, he wins the presidency he wants and loses it narrowly. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of conservative politicians who say the Trump weighs the way. If he mm. gets trounced, I think that's a little less likely. So um, so Trump could still win this race. There's no question about that. I think it's going to be, you know, uphill sledding because the economy is going to be hard. People don't like how he's handled the last two crises. So they really want to trust him for four more years. But he's going to get north of 45, 46, 47 in these battleground states. That's just the fact of life. And when he does that, you know, it gets too close for comfort. So the, the big thing to watch demographically, I think, there's a bunch of things. You know, does Biden do well enough with young voters is, 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 is really important. But Biden is showing unusual strength for a Democratic candidate with older voters. Hmm. And if those numbers hold, that becomes almost a checkmate for Trump. So that's the thing to watch very carefully is 60 days, 90 days from now, is Biden still doing as well or as close to well with older voters? And if he is, that just is uh, erodes Trump's foundation to a degree that makes it hard for him to make those numbers up elsewhere. Hmm. All right. That's David Pluff. His book is called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump. David, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. 
And that's it for this week's episode. This episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.